podcast where we view each and every individual as valuable and capable. I'm your host, Chelsea Pruitt, and on today's episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Miriam Bosch. Dr. Bosch just got promoted to Associate Professor professor at the University of North Texas, where she has been teaching and conducting research for six years now. Congratulations, Dr. Bosch. Her interest primarily includes researching assistive and augmentative communication strategies for individuals with disabilities. She has served as my advisor and mentor during my time in the PhD program. Dr. Bosch is consistently positive, encouraging, and focused on changing the field to better serve individuals with disabilities. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Miriam Bosch. Dr. Bosch, and welcome to the Autism Hour podcast. Let's jump right into the questions. Um, what experiences led you to pursue a career in academia? Well, I've, I've thought about, uh, you know, this is a question that sometimes I get asked uh, from time to time from just classes and, you know, my students, and it really wasn't a direct path, and mm-hmm. there wasn't really uh, one specific experience that I ended up having. A lot of it had to do with um, uh, timing. Okay. And so um, I ended up getting my, uh, my master's degree at Purdue University. And so I was finishing up my master's and uh, one of the faculty members that asked if I was interested in pursuing a PhD and, okay. you know, and staying. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I, you know, I, I'm <laughs> done with school. You yeah. know, go get a job. You know, I had... Uh, I went straight through. I did my undergrad and then went straight through and got my master's. And so I'm like, no, you know, yeah. I, I can't. I've had enough. <laughs> I've had enough. Five years, you know, I can't see myself doing another four or five years, depending on uh, how long the research was going to take towards the end. But uh, so I left it as that. And I said, you know, no, you know, I'm not interested. Okay. And so I ended up moving back to Texas. I was a special ed teacher. And even though I enjoyed my you know, my time as a special education teacher, I knew that it wasn't going to be something that I wanted to do for the rest of my career okay. until I retired. And so I started, I continuously thought about, well, what if I had stayed and got my PhD? Mm-hmm. You know, what, you know, what would happen afterwards? You know, what things could I do? And so I ended up moving back to Indiana and, um, you know, and ended up, uh, uh, obviously applying and then mm-hmm. uh, got accepted and went to Indiana to uh, pursue my doctoral degree. And even then, I still didn't know I was going to go into academia. So it, it sounds crazy, but uh, sometimes, and myself included, you know, sometimes students start a program with a different thing in mind. Mm-hmm. And then um, for me, after that, just halfway through, I really couldn't see myself doing anything else other okay. than working in academia oh, no, Dr. and Bush. so <laughs> and so uh the the program did such a good job in preparing all of us to pursue kind of a uh, a line of research and to uh do presentations and do things that typically a you know a professor would do mm-hmm. And so when I was close to graduating, it just seemed like a very natural fit. Okay. You know, it just progressed to where, you know, I didn't have any doubts. I'm like, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I am going to pursue, a, you know, a, a career in academia. Okay. And so that year uh, I started applying and went to several interviews and 
um, and then I end up getting a position and here yeah. I am. Here you are. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't that I had this lifelong dream of doing okay. it. It just, again, you know, it's the circumstances and timing and, yeah. uh, you know, once that experiences kind of leads you in a path just a little bit, it diverts you mm -hmm. and then those experiences lead you somewhere else and somewhere else and then you end up, you know, being in the place Please. that, yeah. you know, you just, in a way, either were meant to uh, be mm -hmm. or... Um, it just, you know, maybe, but if you didn't start out that way, it felt, once you were already there, it felt natural, mm -hmm. and so you stayed. Yeah, and I think people have a lot to do with that. People you meet along the way, mentors you have, yeah. encouragement that you receive. So. Yeah, and so it, it worked out. Yeah, and definitely. I'm, I'm and now you're great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a couple of follow-up questions to that. What was your master's in? In special education, uh, severe disabilities was my focus. Okay. But I did get a grant while I was um, doing my master's and um, in well, I was a grant-funded student, essentially. It's not that I'm the one that, you know, applied and received a grant. I was a grant-funded student. Okay. And so as part of that, I had to um, learn about um, augmentative and alternative communication. I work with students uh, out in the field, okay. so in schools. And so every week I had to work uh, about 12 to 15 hours in um you know at the schools providing direct services and supporting okay. the teachers wow what a uh, great experience ACE. it was it was yeah. uh it was wonderful because not only was i learning it but i was applying it and and because i was applying it i was even learning a lot more than mm -hmm. if i was just taking a class on aac definitely and so even though my my degree was in uh, severe disabilities um my practicums and uh my job essentially was working with students with AEC needs. Mm -hmm. Okay so. and then you were a special education teacher. How I long was. did you do that? So I did that for a couple of years and uh, in, it wasn't very long but it was long enough for me to know that um, I, I didn't see myself doing it for the rest of my career. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed working with the students. I enjoyed working with the staff and uh, but somehow I think because uh, before I left uh, for my master's program, I think uh, I had in the back of my mind about you know what what were the possibilities if I did get a doctoral degree, mm -hmm. and so I think that um, somehow those thoughts in the back of my mind kind of led me to be kind of um, not really comfortable in staying you know, um, in a position where mm -hmm. I was serving uh, as a special education teacher. Okay. Now, I think it's valuable to become a special education teacher. Obviously, uh, I made a career of now training yes, future special definitely. education teachers. But, uh, you know, but sometimes, you know, there's things that occur um, in, your, in your life or in your career or people you meet that give you kind of like that extra push to... Mm -hmm. um, you know, obtain a position that you can reach more people. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I felt that I needed to do was yeah. that not just, you know, have, you know, a direct impact with the few students that I had, mm -hmm. but more of a, you know, a greater impact. Mm -hmm. so, I'm smiling because that's exactly what motivated me to pursue my PhD is the fact that I really felt like I could make mm -hmm. a bigger impact and a bigger difference if I could affect more students and more individuals right. than the eight that were in my classroom. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. So, you know, so, great. so you say, yeah, <laughs> there's always these little things that kind of motivate you to mm-hmm. do something else. Yeah. And there's other people that are perfectly happy mm-hmm. uh, serving, a, you know, students on a, you know, in a closer, you know, more intimate setting. In and a we classroom. need those people. And we need those. Yes. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Yes. And we greatly need them. Yes, definitely. So. so I know your some of your experience also includes working for a state school. Uh-huh. Um, is that the special education experience that you're referring That's to? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, so I was, uh, it, it was a very unique situation yeah. because um, I was working in a state school facility but I was employed by the uh, local school district mm-hmm. as a special education teacher. And it was, uh, they actually considered us uh, homebound teachers. Okay. And the reason we were considered homebound special education teachers is that we weren't necessarily going to their, what we consider traditional homes, mm-hmm. but they were living, they were living on the state so, school, yeah. uh, you know, on the uh, campus. So it is a homebound mm-hmm. service because they weren't going anywhere. And most of my students were medically fragile or okay. had, uh, um, like, problem behaviors that just really impacted their ability to, you know, be transported and mm-hmm. you know, go all day to a regular classroom or regular special education classroom in the mm-hmm. school district. Did the majority of these students have autism specifically, or was there a no, right, uh, wide range? Uh, yes. The, okay. They had different disabilities. Um, as a matter of fact, I only had uh, two students that had autism. Okay. All the other students had other disabilities. Okay. So, okay. So after that experience, you decided to pr- pursue your PhD. What concentration was your PhD in? So um, it was in augmentative and alternative communication. Okay. So it, again, special education. Mm-hmm. But then you get to um, have a um, a concentration mm-hmm. in, in my program was augmentative and alternative communication, and so I, it was it was a, a natural fit because I was uh, getting you know that knowledge and skills as a master's uh, level student, and so once I went to the PhD program, it was a natural fit for me to pursue that line of. Uh, of work mm-hmm. essentially and that's still currently your main research interest can it you sure is, yeah. can you talk to mm-hmm. listeners a little bit about what AAC is what that consists of sure so it's not just um, the uh, tools that maybe some people may think of so AAC is a it, it's a field and uh, and within the field when we talk about AAC we're talking about the uh, the tools and the strategies so Sometimes people think, okay, well, AAC is only the use of speech-generating devices mm-hmm. or the use of uh, the picture exchange communication system or, in short, PECs. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not it. That's only, you know, one portion of it. You know, it also includes uh, the strategies that you use to teach students uh, to learn how to use some of these alternative or augmentative um, modalities to communicate. And so... Um, so AC is particularly applicable for students, or not just students, but any individual who has difficulty communicating through mm-hmm. the traditional means that you and I would communicate, so uh, particularly speech, natural mm-hmm. speech, and uh, writing. So for those that have uh, difficulty in those areas, AC will, um, uh, you know, is beneficial to not only uh, help support 
and increasing those skills or if you completely don't have them then it serves as a replacement strategy. Okay. So, And now does most of your research focus on utilizing AAC tools and strategies for individuals with autism specifically? Uh, initially it started out that way, but okay. I kind of branched out. And okay. now uh, some of my line of work is more so in terms of uh, what type of training are uh, special education teachers were saving on AAC. Okay. And so currently right now we're doing a, um, we're developing a survey to um, uh, survey teachers across uh, the country and seeing what type of, uh, you know, what, what types of things did they receive during their program, uh, educational programming that helps them be prepared to provide services to those who need AAC. Okay. And so in just in our own personal experiences, we've noticed that a lot of teachers don't have those, uh, you know, those skills. Mm -hmm. They don't have the knowledge or the skills. Mm -hmm. And it's really important because um, in particularly in um, autism, one of the deficits is having communication mm -hmm. difficulties. And so they're prime candidates for AAC, even if teachers don't immediately recognize it mm -hmm. um, and so you know so that's what we're trying to do we're trying to assess you know where are the the gaps you know what are the things that teachers aren't learning that way you know we can start thinking okay well what are some possible solutions to ensure that we kind of uh, minimize that gap and mm -hmm. we're preparing mm -hmm. teachers to go out there and be um, you know be excellent providers in AAC. Mm -hmm. I know my experience when I was teaching, um, there were several AAC devices in the classroom or that were offered to me, but right. there was never any training on how to utilize those devices. It was up to me to figure it out on my own, right. which I had very little time to do. So most of the Correct. time they just stayed in the cabinet because I didn't want the kids right. to mess them up or anything. And I didn't really know how to use them. Is that a common finding? That's very common. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we're trying to, uh, uh, mitigate is that we don't want teachers to be afraid of technology mm -hmm. and in, in order to uh, ensure that that occurs we need training we mm -hmm. need to train them because with training they're more uh, accepting of than using these uh, systems mm -hmm. and then it's it's really difficult to try to train a student mm -hmm. to use them if you yourself don't know how exactly to use them. And so if the teachers aren't being trained, then we have a problem because mm -hmm. the, the students aren't getting the services they're that they need. Out. And yeah. they're missing out. And there's already a major gap between, you know, what the students with disabilities, uh, their level of communication skills, and obviously those without disabilities. Mm -hmm. And so in order to kind of bring them up to uh, the same level as their peers, we really need to ensure that the teachers are learning what they need to learn to help mm -hmm. their students. Absolutely. And I think that it helps with buy-in also. Like if you have some kind of training program right. that you're implementing with the teachers, I would be more um, likely to utilize some of those tools and strategies if I had somebody telling me why they're successful, why I should be using them, how to use them. You know, that would definitely help and right. increase my buy-in. Right. And, you know, what we've been trying to do is uh, – when teachers, and, and going back to, you know, what you just mentioned about buy-in, 
Oftentimes, it falls on the speech-language pathologist to provide the um, services and, and to recommend the appropriate device mm -hmm. or system for the student to use. But what's equally important is to ensure that they're getting input from the uh, teachers, mm -hmm. from the parents, and if uh, and if they're able to from the student, you know, him or herself. Mm -hmm. Because once everybody has input, then there is more buy-in mm -hmm. and they're more invested. And so it's it's just kind of a it goes in a full circle, mm -hmm. you know. It, uh, the staff need to be trained. The students need to be trained. Parents. Need, the parents need to be mm -hmm. trained, and so obviously the focus is on the training. But we can't begin to really determine, okay, what type of training do people need until we assess, well, what type of training are they already receiving? Mm -hmm. And then once we uh, find out, well, what they're already receiving, then we can see, okay, well, what are the things that they're needing and that they're missing, and that they're missing, mm -hmm. so we can cover those. Uh, I think what we're going to end up finding out is that there is very little training <laughs> yeah. because uh, without you know doing the research, just from personal experiences where we know that that's happening, mm -hmm. we just need to really uh, get the data and let the data drive our decision and how to. Uh, best uh, provide the training. Absolutely. And is that kind of your end goal to figure out a training program that would be beneficial for our schools to right. implement? Right. And, you know, we we have uh, a good idea about what type of training okay. is uh, needed just because uh, there's there's research out there in mm -hmm. other fields about, okay. you know, the different training mechanisms that best assist uh, teachers and others in retaining the information. But, uh, but there is less work on uh, the AAC field about what those things look like and what are the um, the areas and skills that the teachers need to be directly taught. Okay. When did AAC um, enter into the field? Um, when did people start talking about it, discussing these tools and strategies? Yeah, well, it's it's been around for a long time, okay. but uh, if memory serves me right, it was in uh, the uh, uh, late fifties, early sixties okay. that you know it started becoming more of a of an area. Okay, and um, and so there's the, even though it's kind of a long history, it still isn't as long as some other field, mm -hmm. and so there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, in that area, and even if it's been around uh, for you know over um, you know half a century, it's for a lot of people it's still a new concept, mm -hmm. and so we're constantly having to uh, talk about well, what is AC? How can mm -hmm. it be beneficial? Raise to the awareness students? of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, definitely raising awareness, mm -hmm. and just like anything else, I mean if. If they're not in the field, then it's natural not to really be uh, knowledgeable in that mm -hmm. area. So my job is to ensure that there is awareness on it. Okay. What excites you most about being in this research area? Um, what really drives you to continue pursuing this research interest? Yeah, well, there's still so much to, uh, to learn. And it's mm -hmm. such a, it's a small field of AC and so when you go to conferences and you uh, start talking to other researchers who have similar interests uh, it really you know in in my view kind of uh, 
ignites and reignites what started when uh, I was a doctoral student mm -hmm. and where I was learning things for the first time mm -hmm. and you know actually starting to do research in that area and so it kind of brings me back to that time okay when I go to conferences or I start uh, working with other um, other colleagues and and we start talking about okay well what are some of the gaps what can we do mm -hmm. you know that's aligned to our own interests and so just talking and in the, going to conferences and kind of being immersed in that. Um, here currently, um, you know, there is another student, or not a student, another faculty member who is uh, new to the program. And she has some interests that are aligned to mine in mm -hmm. terms of AC. So that also kind of reignites, mm -hmm. you know, our, uh, our desire to continue doing research in that area. And then I have uh, somebody that I collaborate with all the time and we actually graduated from the same program area okay. so uh, so it's always fun to work with somebody that you get along with who's mm -hmm. uh, not only a collaborator but a friend mm -hmm. and so all those things just kind of uh, culminate in really uh, you know ignite my <laughs> yeah yeah, my yeah I always find it really encouraging when other people share in my passions and interests. Right. So, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about autism spectrum disorder, just a little bit about the diagnostic components, um, right. a little bit about the characteristics prevalence, just give us in common terms what autism spectrum disorder is. I know that's a right. challenging task, but... It is, just because <laughs> autism in itself is... Uh, there's so many areas that are impacted mm -hmm. and so when we start thinking about uh, the diagnostic uh, features well it's there's not a, a blood test that you can take mm -hmm. that says okay you have autism mm -hmm. you know we uh, end up diagnosing somebody based on what we see mm -hmm. and the the behaviors that we're observing and some of the behaviors that we're observing is uh, their uh, social interaction and their social communication skills and then uh, along the same lines, uh, also their, um, their stereotypy or their repetitive movements and behaviors and uh, um, their, in a way, you know, obsessions. Mm -hmm. And so those three major uh, core components are what um, essentially lead somebody to determine if somebody has autism or not. Okay. Now, when we start talking about... Um, the specifics, it's, it can be very difficult sometimes uh, for with some students depending on where they fall in, because it's more of a, uh, a continuum. Mm -hmm. It's not like, a, you know, there's one area and it's always, you know, they display X skills mm -hmm. uh, with such intensity or a number of times. It's not that way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, such a... Uh, there's so much heterogeneity that it it's difficult. It mm -hmm. really is for those that are trying to diagnose. And so sometimes we see some individuals have problems with motor movement. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, uh, or usually one of the classic symptoms is a lack of eye contact. Mm -hmm. uh, for younger children, uh, they may have a, um, they may not communicate or they may not be uh, meeting the milestones that typically uh, children at the same age would be meeting 
And so uh, there's several things at play. So uh, just like I mentioned, you know, motor movements, eye contact, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, awkward gait. Okay. Um, Can you uh, tell our listeners what gait refers to? Yeah, so it's essentially the uh, the, the the walk, you know, the way they mm-hmm. walk. Sometimes it's they have like a, they walk on their uh, toes. Mm-hmm. They have that uh, sometimes awkward uh, balance. Mm-hmm. They're not uh, a balance or their movements and their coordination is not smooth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's not what we see in typically developing children. Mm-hmm. And so there aren't very many, I mean, the, the problem, again, I keep having to go back to uh, there's not one, you know, one type of movement that is demonstrated with all the students mm-hmm. or all the children that end up getting diagnosed with autism. And so, you know, it just requires somebody who's experienced Mm -hmm. and to be able to uh, look at the behavior and see, okay, you know, it really falls outside of what the uh, scope is of Mm -hmm. what we consider uh, normal. And um, and so, yeah, so those are some of the uh, characteristics that we see in students with autism. Can you tell us a little bit about high-functioning autism versus low-functioning autism? I know that those are terms that are thrown around a lot in the field, um, and some people may not know the distinction. Yeah, so um, there is a continuum, Mm -hmm. and it's easy for us to say, you know, uh, low-functioning and high-functioning. And so it makes it it easier to talk about those things in terms of uh, using kind of a uh, more broad terms but when you really look at it uh, there's no truly defining uh, feature that would say okay this one is high functioning this one's low functioning so when we talk about somebody who is low functioning we primarily think about somebody who doesn't have any uh, functional communication skills okay Um, they have a lot of um, uh, behaviors that may be uh, challenging. They have a, uh, they either have a lot of challenges or they just don't have any uh, appropriate social interaction skills. Okay. And so there are some students that may have uh, appropriate communication skills, but the social interactions are not appropriate okay and so those are the uh, students that we have a hard time determining okay do they fall under the uh, low functioning Mm -hmm. umbrella or the high functioning umbrella okay and for the high functioning it's just you know what the what it sounds like i mean the students are functioning at a higher level they still have uh, difficulties but Mm -hmm. they just don't need as many support to uh, essentially function in everyday life. Okay. So they may have spoken language, uh, but their issue is that maybe they only talk about things that they're interested in. Okay. And so, yes, they can communicate their, their needs or wants, ask questions, but they do still have some limitations. Okay. And then, um, and then in terms of, um, eye contact, typically, you know, um, eye contact is, uh, a characteristic that can be seen in both those that fall under the, uh, um, you know, low functioning or high functioning. Sometimes they just don't have appropriate eye contact, mm-hmm. and somebody who would be classified as high functioning may still have difficulties with mm-hmm. maintaining eye contact, but they are more uh, able to learn that skill 
and they may need you know some prompting but they don't need as many supports as somebody who we would label as low functioning. Okay. Does that kind mm -hmm. of make sense a little? Yeah, and a follow-up question to that is just how does IQ play into that? I think I've read before in my studies that um, high functioning is technically an IQ above 70, I want to say. Is that accurate or is that still well, a way? Uh, there's debates. Okay. There really is debates because uh, it used to, you know, people used to say that the majority of students with autism had also cognitive delays. Okay. And so uh, now that more research has been done, that's actually not uh, not the case. There's a lot more individuals with autism that don't have cognitive delays. Okay. And so, um, in terms which is of, encouraging for a lot of teachers is, and parents right, to hear. It, it certainly is. Yeah. And so to say that there's kind of a cutoff score, there really isn't. Okay. I mean, sometimes people put cutoff scores because it's easier mm -hmm. for people that are outside the field to kind of kind of compre comprehend that or not comprehend but I guess have a better idea of what that person looks like in terms of their skills mm -hmm. but uh, but no I mean there really isn't a, a hard number that we say okay you know those with high functioning have an IQ of X or okay. whatever. Okay, yeah, that's good information. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about prevalence of autism? There's been a lot of talk about increasing prevalence rates. I know the latest number is 1 in 68, I believe. Right. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your thoughts on why that rate has increased over time and right. what that's due to? Uh, again, that's kind of in our field, mm -hmm. you know, something that's up for debate. Yes. Um, I personally think that we are getting better at diagnosing mm -hmm. and there's just a lot more awareness so in the past the students that were going into the school systems and receiving services because there was you know they had a disability they were often being uh, labeled as having a, a developmental disability mm -hmm. or intellectual disability mm -hmm. and or even schizophrenia I know that was right, a disability yeah. that a lot of individuals with autism were um, diagnosed with early on. Well, yeah, very and, early yeah. on, like in the uh, 60s or mm -hmm. so. But you're correct. Um, in the past, they might have had uh, what we now consider autism, but they weren't labeled as having autism. Mm -hmm. They were labeled as something else mm -hmm. because the uh, there just wasn't as much awareness about just what the disorder looked like. Mm -hmm. And again, because it doesn't look the same with every individual, it makes it more challenging to diagnose somebody with autism. And so, you know, to say that, I mean, yes, of course, you know, we've seen the numbers increasing, but there's other things at play in that. Um, we can't discount the, um, the possibility that, you know, it may be other factors, mm -hmm. you know, environmental factors that could uh, contribute to that mm -hmm. uh, paired with uh, obviously uh, we know genetics mm -hmm. play into that and when we start talking about the genetic component we're not saying necessarily that um, everybody who has autism you know somebody else in their family had autism now there's a greater likelihood mm -hmm. but there's uh, now research that has come out that shows that in within the second trimester there's something going on you know in the uh, you know in the pregnancy that happens that ends up uh, creating the environment 
to then the uh, child having autism or the uh, the infant having autism. So they're seeing that it's not something that is acquired after the fact. It occurs before they're even born. Okay. And so the talk about it being uh, immunizations, mm-hmm. uh, it's been refuted countless mm-hmm. times. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's not going away. I don't know yeah, there's still Why a large number yes. of people who have that belief. It, it's yeah, that, that's another issue that we're trying to uh, combat. It's a mm-hmm. big obstacle because parents are uh, not all of them, but there's a, a portion of uh, parents that are deciding not to vaccinate mm-hmm. their, uh, you know, their children because they're they're afraid that their child will have autism Mm -hmm. uh, after the uh, vaccines, but we know that that's not true. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, there are individuals that never received vaccinations who still have autism. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, anyway, going back to, you know, we know that the children are born already having autism. Mm -hmm. It's just that we don't see the, uh, the symptoms. Characteristics. Right. Until later, just because again, we don't have a, a medical way of finding out whether they have autism. It's not until they start displaying these behaviors. Mm-hmm. And if they're not, you know, aligned to what we consider typical behaviors, mm-hmm. then that's when they start giving us indicators mm-hmm. that potentially they may have autism. Yeah, definitely. And I think there is some research coming out now that has been um, conducting some studies with infants and looking at their eye gaze and things like that to determine if they may later be diagnosed with autism or not. And same thing with kind of brain functioning, what parts right. of the brain light up when certain activities are going on. Um, so we are coming up with ways to diagnose that even earlier than when, right. you know, the two or three year old isn't talking as much or isn't socializing. Exactly. And it's a, it's very exciting because that means that the earlier we diagnose, you know, these, uh, these infants or children, the uh, faster they receive services. Mm-hmm. One of the problem is that they're already lagging behind and then they don't receive services until they start uh, school. Mm-hmm. They've already lost so much time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with brain uh, plasticity, meaning that they're, the, uh, the child's uh, brain is obviously still developing, mm-hmm. but it's very, uh, can be easily uh, changed based on interventions that the student receives. Mm-hmm. And so if we can provide those interventions to then help their brain, you know, develop these, um, you know, these neural pathways mm-hmm. that essentially allow them to be, uh, to later on have, uh, abilities that are much greater that essentially fall under the label of what we consider high functioning. Mm -hmm. Almost coping mechanisms that you're teaching them in their brain. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, uh, certainly, you know, the earlier we start, the better it is, the better outcome that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the genetic component of autism? So I know um, there's been research done on concordance rates and twin studies. Can you tell us a little bit about the impact that that research has? Yeah, so uh, even though that's not my area of research, you know, I obviously uh, like to uh, read up on it. Mm -hmm. But essentially, the um, because there is some... uh, uh, that genetic component of it. Students, I keep saying students because I work with students, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I'm talking about children <laughs> in general. If there's a child with, you know, with autism already in the family, there's, 
the higher incidence that uh, a sibling will also have autism. Mm -hmm. And we see these numbers uh, increase significantly when we're talking about twins. Mm -hmm. And when they start uh, doing these twin studies, they've noticed that, okay, there's also a difference between, uh, you know, fraternal uh, mm -hmm. twins and, and identical. identical. Mm -hmm. And those that have, that are identical, they're the incidence of having autism, both of them having autism, are even greater. Mm -hmm. Isn't it something like 90% of a chance that... Uh, I don't know identical. the exact okay. uh, numbers, but it is very high. Okay. And it could very well be in the 90s. Okay. And uh, and so that alone, just, just knowing that, you know that there's something in the genetic material that's in play. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know exactly what or what uh, you know what gene mm -hmm. or uh, which combination of genes yeah I was about to say it's usually more than one right. gene that's and, involved and the other thing is that there's uh, different causes of autism mm -hmm. so that also complicates matters and when the, the people that are doing the brain research they really have a hard time yeah. <laughs> the, their area is significantly uh, just more complicated because the brain in itself is a very complicated manner, mm -hmm. and everything that is, um, you know, occurring within their environment, and I'm not talking about just environment like within, you know, uh, the environment of uh, that you and I are experiencing, but the environment of the uh, fetus mm -hmm. in the womb, you know, those environments and you know things that are occurring. Uh, makes it so difficult because you can't control all those extraneous variables mm -hmm. you just can't and so if you're seeing results with one particular uh, infant then it doesn't mean that it's the same for every single infant because mm -hmm. there's so many differences mm -hmm. and so um, I really have to say I admire the people that do research in that Absolutely. area because uh, there's so many things that they're having to consider and trying to keep things um, in a very controlled manner mm -hmm. so they can study it is a very tall order. <laughs> mm -hmm. But they are coming up with some great revelations um, yeah. that are super productive for the field. So Right, exactly. Yeah. And the, more power to them. I'm glad they're there and right, not me. <laughs> right. The more they find out, the more it helps us Absolutely. in terms of you know us who are actually uh, looking at interventions that mm -hmm. will help those that, that have autism. Mm -hmm. so. Now we've mentioned the terms interventions and services and supports for students with autism. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about some evidence-based practices that are recommended for individuals with autism? Um, just talk to us a little bit about that. I know that's pretty broad. Right. So uh, when we're talking more about the school-based based uh, services uh, really right now the uh, gold standard still is uh, applied behavior analysis okay there's a lot of research you know that supports uh, the use of uh, ABA mm -hmm. and there's many strategies that fall under the umbrella of ABA mm -hmm. and uh, some of those uh, strategies include uh, you know the use of uh, like prompting and shaping and using of uh, antecedent strategies and uh, consequence strategies. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we know that those strategies work 
And so ABA is uh, something that we always recommend for individuals to start as a first line of intervention mm -hmm. because you don't want to start uh, a student, you don't want to use strategies that are still uh, not research-based because there's already, they're already at a, um, you know, at a disadvantage compared to their uh, peers without disabilities. And so if we lose time using strategies that we know aren't proven effective or that may or may not be effective, mm -hmm. we don't want to take that chance. I mean, mm -hmm. why would we want to take that chance? And delay the And delay the, uh, the interventions, mm -hmm. yeah. And so, you know, if we know that um, ABA works, then definitely we should start with ABA. Mm -hmm. And then if the parents and the, um, you know, educators want to use something else on top of that, mm -hmm. then I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. And it should be somewhat individualized right, based on the definitely. needs of the individual. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But to say that, you know, we're going to start off with interventions that may or may not work is, in my opinion, just... Um, you know, we're doing a disservice to the students. Mm -hmm. We really are. Absolutely. And is it fair to say that evidence-based is the same as research-based practices? Um, just uh, put evidence-based treatments in common terms. Yeah, so evidence-based treatments means that there is uh, data to show that that intervention works mm -hmm. with the people that have been... Uh, that that intervention has been applied to them. So essentially, okay. when I say I'm going to use, uh, let's say, a discrete trial training. So a discrete trial training is another uh, strategy that is uh, evidence-based. Mm -hmm. And so... And that's the, part of the ABA umbrella, Right, correct? it is part mm -hmm. of the ABA umbrella. So if you use uh, a DTT, in the manner that it was essentially developed that shows that there was evidence, mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that 100% of the time it's going to work mm -hmm. with every individual. Uh, that's not what we're saying. We're just saying that there's intervention and there's been research to support its efficacy. Mm -hmm. And so um, just like you know what we briefly mentioned, it needs to be individualized mm -hmm. because what works with one student may not necessarily work with a different Absolutely. student. So you need to consider what are their needs, what are their strengths, and then kind of use a uh, evidence-based strategy that does help in uh, you know in providing those services to those um, to those specific needs mm -hmm. of the child. Have you found that most parents are pretty willing to accept um, ABA strategies and put those into practice? Or have you um, heard any negative feedback from parents when you mention the term ABA and start talking about those interventions? Yeah, I, I've seen both. Okay. So, you know, more and more uh, parents are seeing the power of ABA mm -hmm. or they're at least um, learning about it mm -hmm. and want to uh, have their child receive ABA services. But on the other hand, I've also seen parents who say, no, we tried ABA and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Well, was the ABA uh, intervention that the child received really uh, done well, or was it something else that was labeled as ABA, mm -hmm. but it truly wasn't ABA? Mm -hmm. Or what I've also seen is that, you know, they say, you know, we have some parents, and not just parents, actually, uh, unfortunately, uh, some educators mm -hmm. will say that, you know, ABA is for 
training animals, you know, training, oh, wow. training dogs, and it should not be applied to humans. Okay. And so, uh, just like, you know, I, I see the shock on your yeah. face. <laughs> uh, yes, it's very shocking, but I, I have seen that and heard that, mm -hmm. and it's very troubling because here we are trying to promote you know an intervention that we know is, <laughs> is gonna work mm -hmm. and then have somebody completely outright refute it mm -hmm. with no data to support <laughs> their stance yeah yeah <laughs> and so it, it really it is difficult so um, so fortunately though I've seen a lot more parents that are seeking ABA services they just can't get them because okay. um, if they're wanting services from a, a behavioral uh, analyst, then uh, it requires money mm -hmm. and it's costly. very costly. Mm -hmm. And then not only that, but uh, just costly in terms of time and uh, re resources like mm -hmm. funding. And so we really want to train our teachers to provide uh, ABA services because you know, they're the ones that are directly working with these students. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that are seeing them every day and could provide the most impact. Mm -hmm. And if you have somebody who's a uh, BCBA who's coming in uh, only once, you know, every couple of weeks because they have such, you know, mm -hmm. such a case, a large caseload, um, it's not very effective. Mm -hmm. We know that ABA requires, you know, a lot more time dedicated to providing those services. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things that I've noticed from what we were just talking about is most often I've heard the second thing that you mentioned about responses to ABA where um, parents or teachers are just not really buying in because I think ABA has done in, been done incorrectly in their experience in some way, shape, or form, so they haven't really seen the effect of ABA. Um, and I think on the side of an educator, you know, um, I went to several discrete trial training, tr uh, like teaching um, like sessions, I guess. Yeah, like professional yeah. development sessions. Um, but I never really understood how I could take what I was learning. And they were telling us that it's best done one to one and like all of these different things. And I was like, how do you take that and do that in a classroom where you have eight students and three adults? Obviously, that doesn't adhere to a one to one ratio. So right. Yeah. Sometimes you do have to uh, deviate in certain areas, but at the same time, you still have to adhere to some the of the core components mm -hmm. of that intervention. So um, in terms of DTT, so you have uh, obviously, it's a very regimented uh, mm -hmm. intervention, and it's there is research to show that when um, training was provided to paraprofessionals, mm -hmm. they were able to implement it, you know, with fidelity mm -hmm. to the students. So, if you have, you know, a staff of you know two or three paraprofessionals in your class, then uh, you know you can train them. Mm -hmm. So. Even if the student isn't receiving DTT all throughout the day, just you know, using it one-on-one uh, -on, -one, uh, on a daily basis, even for a short time, mm -hmm. is very beneficial mm -hmm. still. Absolutely. And so it's better to receive some that not at all. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, training really is important to yeah. uh, to get buy-in to ensure that it's being uh, implemented with fidelity. And you know, if it is implemented with fidelity, people can see the power that mm -hmm. it has 
And then there is more buy-in. Yeah, definitely. um, From all parties, right? I mean, it decreases challenging behaviors, which we all want in every setting. Exactly. And so the parents will see that, and then Mm -hmm. it'll be buy-in for the parents as well. Absolutely. And I think that was one thing that I commonly um, questioned when I was a teacher is, why are my parents not receiving a lot of the trainings that I'm required to go to? They would be just as beneficial, and if it's not all my responsibility would be a lot more achievable, I think. Yeah, we can't expect the teacher to uh, learn every strategy, use it with all the students, and that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, uh, the support staff need to receive training. Absolutely. I recently listened to a podcast episode um, and wanted to hear your thoughts about this. Um, The individual was talking about ABA being utilized inappropriately, was talking really about forced prompting, so like hand-over-hand prompting, um, and some blocking strategies that a lot of people utilize. And I think that several people, um, when I was a teacher and I was seeking advice, would mention like blocking components and forced prompting components. Um, And the individual on the podcast was really... um, hesitant to utilize those strategies and instead was offering replacement strategies and her main reason was because a lot of the blocking and force prompting can lead an individual to just become like a limp puppet almost where they're just um they're prompt dependent exactly and they're just learning that if somebody has authority over you is bigger and can overpower you you should just give into that and become you know a limp individual that just allows them to do whatever they want and her argument was that could lead them to be taken advantage of at a later point you know if they've been trained in this way you know for years and years what's stopping them or what's what's going to prompt them to say no when they don't want somebody to overpower them or you know utilize some of those um, similar strategies I guess so just tell me your thoughts on on that so um my thoughts is always um use the the methods that are least intrusive okay to uh to the individual so when you're talking about prompting you certainly don't want to uh, prompt from a hierarchy of most to least okay you actually would it's depending on skills but primarily you know i encourage okay prompting uh providing the most minimal prompt okay that still allows the person to be successful okay because uh, just like I mentioned earlier, you don't want the student to become prompt dependent, mm-hmm. and and we do see that mm-hmm. with uh, you know with a lot of individuals is that they they know what they want, but they uh, they wait until the teacher or you know whoever's pro- providing the, mm-hmm. uh, the typically you know it's the teacher, but whoever's pro- providing the intervention, you know they have to provide. They see it as, you know, uh, that person has to provide the prompt and then they can initiate or um, respond accordingly. Mm -hmm. And so I do see uh, potential difficulties with that. And so um, I always take it, and I did this whenever I was a teacher. Mm -hmm. And whenever I did uh, studies, I tried to uh, use the least um, intrusive prompt first. Okay rather than immediately trying to go with hand over hand. Absolutely. Now, if you do have a a student that requires intrusive prompts, you quickly fade those away Mm -hmm. as soon as the individual uh, gains, you know, more skills and becomes more proficient. Mm -hmm. 
And I think the thing to remember is your end goal, right? Your end goal isn't to create like a puppet that just does whatever you are prompting them to do, but instead to create an individual who has independence and is learning these skills um, to be able to perform them in an environment completely separate from you. Right. And then, you know, one of the good strategies that people need to incorporate is the use of uh, choice making because Mm -hmm. it helps with uh, uh, self-determination skills. And with self-determination skills, that uh, that empowers the individual to um, have a say mm-hmm. in what they want, what they don't want, what activities they want to participate in. Uh, obviously, there's restrictions to a certain extent within the classroom, but once they graduate and they transition out of the uh, you know the school, you know, just like you were mentioning earlier, you know, they may be susceptible to. Um, abuse being taken Mm -hmm. advantage of and so those are skills that we need to uh, teach early on Mm -hmm. Uh, learning to uh, to say no Mm -hmm. and you know and that falls also on the training of the educators Mm -hmm. is that the educators are there to ensure that the student at the very end once they're done with school Mm -hmm. that they can lead as an independent life as possible Mm -hmm. that really should be the goal starting from early on from pre-k all the way to high school absolutely and to do so in a safe and successful manner right yeah you need to start thinking about okay well what are all the skills that you know somebody to live independently or or as independent as possible what do they need and then kind of break some of those big things into smaller training uh, trainable components Mm -hmm. and go from there but uh but yes you know um the teachers need to also know that we need to respect you know the students and and so if they you provide if you're providing a choice then you're providing two you know acceptable things Mm -hmm. but it gives it teaches the student that we value you know their preferences Mm -hmm. and doing preference assessments Mm -hmm. and incorporating some of those things into training is important because Mm -hmm. we don't want to impose what we like you know, onto our students. Absolutely. You want to individualize training so that the training uh, that they're receiving empowers them Mm -hmm. in a way that they're learning the the skill, but at the same time that the the student has some level of control. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that leads great into my next question, which is just, what is one thing that you would um, say to a practitioner in the field, you know, working with individuals with autism in either a clinical setting or a school setting? Um, Just one piece of advice, one tip, just something that you would say to them. Uh, For the practitioner? Mm Mm-hmm. So for the practitioner, I would say, and I'm going to tie it back to my area of research, AAC. So one of the things that I think is really important for educators to understand is that it takes a while to learn how to use a system okay, or use a, a device. And so when it's been recommended by the IEP team to use a specific strategy or specific uh, modality, an AC modality, don't come back and say, oh, it didn't work when you've only tried it for, you know, a week, two weeks, Mm -hmm. three weeks, because it takes the individual, you know, a long time to Mm -hmm. learn a new way of communicating. There's a learning curve. (laughs) There definitely is a major learning Mm -hmm. uh, curve, and uh, it happens 
with all of them. Now, sometimes students will acquire, you know, skills quite quickly, mm -hmm. and sometimes they don't. But when it comes to communication, it requires a long time to um, to obtain those skills. We need to think about, okay, how long does it take for an infant to say their first word? Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost a full year, sometimes mm -hmm. even longer. Yeah. And yet, here we are, we're expecting somebody who hasn't had functional communication skills for many years. Yeah, to learn it at the step and of then the fingers. You, <laughs> and then you provide a system and you expect them to learn it in two or three weeks? Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. The other thing related to that is um, we need to, as an educator, for educators, we need to provide modeling and the model, the modeling of the use of these systems. Okay. So just like uh, how we learned, you know, when we were children, we ended up learning the language because we were exposed mm -hmm. to people speaking, you mm -hmm. know. And so we need to provide that same environment for the student who uses an AC device or any other de uh, system. So we need to model somebody using the uh, the device because then, you know, students are learning also by, by seeing what's mm -hmm. been done. So anytime that you're training somebody to use a device or using a system, you model it for them and then in turn uh, have them try to do it mm -hmm. with the uh, least amount of um, intrusive prompting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> and so uh, so that's what, uh, my take-home message for teachers is that don't expect miracles overnight. It mm -hmm. takes time to train. So be patient. Provide that student with plenty of communication opportunities mm -hmm. to learn uh, how to use the system. I really like the second part of that tip, and that's something I might not have even considered as much, but um, just modeling it, especially in just like casual environments, like having right. the teacher um, use it to communicate with the student and vice versa, and then right. having parents do the same. I think that is a really important component that I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, and, and it's it's a natural way for that, how we learn. Mm -hmm. We learn by seeing things and, uh, you know, mimicking. Yeah. And so uh, the, the students that use AC systems or are candidates for AC systems, the same holds true for them. I mean, uh, we don't have any uh, research at this time that shows that they learn uh, completely different. Now, they may have some different ways of learning, but for the most part, they still learn like you and I mm -hmm. learn. So providing the modeling certainly will help them acquire those skills a little bit faster. Definitely. So I'm also going to ask you the same question for a family of a child with autism who does not have functional communication, may or may not already be using an AAC device. What tip would you give to that family? Yeah, so uh, my tip is don't, you know, listen to the medians in terms of uh, iPads are the answer to everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, uh, they're certainly helpful, and I'm glad that they're out in the market because they really have allowed many people to uh, gain access to communication that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. because, they can be a very valuable resource. Right. Mm -hmm. However, you know, just providing, you know, an iPad to your child doesn't mean that somehow it's going to unlock their world, mm -hmm. as they put it out in the media about <laughs> unlocking uh, their minds. Mm -hmm. uh, it requires training. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are just tools. Mm -hmm. You know, the training is the most important thing. Absolutely. And so when uh, the, we see families that are going into the school system saying, I want my child to have X, Y, Z, well, that's a 
that's kind of a backwards way of looking at it. You need to look at, okay, what are the needs of your child? What are the communication needs? What are the student's strengths? What skills do they already have existing that you can kind of build upon? And then select a system that essentially will help meet those needs. Okay. And that essentially uh, encourages for them to be, be building on strengths that they already have. Okay. So you don't select the uh, device first and fit the child to the device. It should be the other way around. Mm -hmm. You need to find something that will, a device or a system that will fit to your child's mm -hmm. needs. And, uh, and, and the reason why I say that is because I have seen it in the past and I still see it now where, you know, they may have a, a family member or friend saying, hey, you know, this worked for my child, you should try it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it's okay to, to try it, but why don't we, you know, go at it from the standpoint of let's assess mm -hmm. the individual, see what is needed, mm -hmm. and then find something that's yeah, appropriate. Yeah, and save yourself the time, because what if that yeah. strategy that worked for your friend doesn't work for your child? You've wasted time yeah. trying that out when it's not successful. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's my take-home message for the parents, is that don't uh, just select something because you read it somewhere, heard it from someone, and be insistent that the child use that. Mm -hmm. You know, consider other needs because you should never select the technology first. Okay. That's a great so. tip. Um, and my final question to you is what is something that's really impacted your life um, upon entering the field of autism and AAC? Um, just what, what is something that's, that you've learned throughout that period of time through your experiences and knowledge that's really left an impact on you? Well, there's been several <laughs> things, but... Uh, I guess the uh, this is kind of a um, very brief answer to that. Okay. So the more I get immersed in the field, the more that I feel I have to learn. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you, you would think that you know, being in a, a field for a number of years, that you know, you're starting to learn everything. When in reality, that's not the case. It's very humbling. Uh, it's it is. It's very humbling yeah. to know that you don't know everything. Yeah. And I know I don't know everything. I mean, I've never thought that <laughs> to begin with. But uh, what I'm uh, saying is that the longer I'm in the field of AC and autism, is the the more I feel I need to learn. Mm -hmm. There's so many areas that are just. Um, the, the research is really building and mm -hmm. building and we're uncovering more things. And so uh, there is not one thing that I can pinpoint to say, okay, this has really, you know, impacted me or that has really changed my view on things. Uh, it's just kind of a culmination of little things here and there. Mm -hmm. But I, I would like to say that uh, I ended up getting into this field because... You know, I do enjoy learning. I, mm -hmm. I, I like learning about something that's complicated and something that I think, uh, I feel that our research, our as in, you know, the field's research, has a potential to impact so many people mm -hmm. in a, uh, I mean, the, the impact is tremendous. It's not like we're doing research that only affects uh 
you know, a small population. Absolutely. Autism not. is growing. Mm-hmm. There's more and more needs to have interventions. And there's so and, many unserved populations that we haven't even gotten to yet. Right. So. And so uh, I think that we're in a field that certainly is admirable to be in because mm-hmm. I, I feel good doing what I do. Mm-hmm. And so that drives me to continue doing what I do. Mm-hmm. So. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bosch, for your time. Um, I always learn and gain a lot from conversations with you, and I, I know the listeners will do the same. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking about this. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the Autism Hour podcast, where we view each and every individual as valuable and capable. I hope you found my conversation with Dr. Bosch informative and encouraging. Please be on the lookout for our next episode. Have a great week.